Hello and welcome to People of Tech with me, Charles Commons, the podcast where I speak to leading figures discussing the current climate and the future of technology in their industries. Along the way, we'll learn more about the people behind the job title and share their thoughts and opinions on their role. In this week's episode... My name is Richard Zalewski. I got laid off from my job. I was working corporately and I got laid off. So back 15, 20 years, you saw a cell phone was basically a old uh, flip phone or just, you know, the the old handheld phone with the buttons and that's it. Then it went to the flip phone and then you had a camera. Then you had a camera with motion and then it started going from there, from there. And then it, it eventually wound up to where we are now. My guest this week is the CEO and President of the Centre for Strategic Cyberspace and International Studies, Richard Zalewski. Previously known as the Centre for Strategic Cyberspace and Security Science, Richard gives us an insight into his career and why he founded the organisation. To start though, I asked him to tell us about his career in cybersecurity to date. My cybersecurity career started a long time ago. I've been around for a long time. I started off working at uh, Canada Post as a help desk operator. And so I did that for a number of years and I got into the network side. Then I moved on from there to a different uh, organization doing consulting and things like that and eventually ended up years later uh, running my own pen test company. So we're doing security testing, assurances, making sure organizations are uh, not hack proof, but as hackable proof as we could get them within the amount of budget and time frame that you had. So uh, for those who don't know what pen testing is, it's basically ethical hacking. So it's, a, it's done under contract, there's legal uh, aspects to it, and uh, you really have to know your stuff. And basically, that's kind of where my jumping off point was to this organization I am with right now. So how this came about was basically I was approached out of Europe to see about the feasibility to maybe start up a cybersecurity think tank. And uh, my thoughts on that were basically, well, if you go to Google and you type in cybersecurity think tank or cybersecurity organizations, there's, there's a lot of them. So what I basically did was I went and talked to a number of people. And what came back to me very quickly was at that time, back in 2011, that not a lot of people, basically nobody was talking about cybersecurity in a cyberspace context. Everything was very, uh, almost like 20,000 foot level. We wanted to take a 50,000 foot level and start looking at things much more uh, globally, holistically. And then from there going, okay, well, in Europe, it's this. In North America, it's this. In Asia Pacific, it's this. And start drilling down to what are the regional implications or attributes for cybersecurity specific to that area. Not not all areas are the same, different laws, different regulations, all that. So we really tried to take a look at it uh, from that standpoint. So my my career actually spans about, I think, I'm dating myself, but I think about 26 years now, overall from day one to here. And I often say to people, I'm homegrown. I taught myself a lot of the stuff because there was no university programs there was no textbooks on it yeah later on there were but when we were coming through the the guys that i came through with at that time we were almost running it up on the fly to the point where when i was doing a lot of technology and assessment work i actually set up systems in labs where i worked 
to run up and test all the newest cool tools and technologies to see how they worked, how they implicated security, and how they actually impacted the devices that they were trying to protect. And that way you could also get a good baseline. So where where did your sort of your inspiration to get into cybersecurity come from? I mean, obviously, um, you know, you, you say you're homegrown, you taught everything uh, that you know yourself. Why? What was your interest or where did the interest actually come from in the first place? Uh, it basically just became a natural evolution. Uh, things started to occur. And what happened to me basically was I got laid off from a job. I was working corporately and I got laid off. And so... For me, for my career, uh, what actually happened was I got laid off. I started working with, I thought, oh, I got to upgrade on a few things. So I was getting into cybersecurity and getting tasked to do these things. So my managers would come, hey, Rich, you're a senior network guy. Uh, you're now the security guy. I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> so I got to go do this stuff now. And so, so you start doing your own research and stuff like that and buying resources and books and things like that. But you can only go so far. So I thought, well, I'll take. The next step, I'll sign up for a course. After I got laid off, I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. So I started doing this. I was actually in this course in Atlanta, Georgia. And what happened was I started talking to the instructors and they said, I want you to meet my partner. And so we started talking about some of the stuff and they said, we'd like to partner with you maybe in North America. And you can, because you're actually really not to, you know, toot my own horn here, but they said, you're actually pretty good. So uh, maybe there's something we can do. I said, sure, absolutely. Why not? And uh, so we did. Unfortunately, the partnership dissolved and I was actually writing courseware for them on security hacking tools and technologies and things like that. And I thought, well, I'll just keep going. And that's how I started my pen test company. And it sort of went from there. So a lot of the stuff that comes up through technology and what is going on out there, as we always say in, in conferences, in the wild, but in the world. There's a natural evolution from something as simple as a good example of this is cell phones. So back 15, 20 years, you saw a cell phone was basically a old uh, flip phone or just, you know, the the old handheld phone with the buttons and that's it. Then it went to the flip phone and then you had a camera and then you had a then you had a camera with uh, 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 motion. And then it started going from there, from there. And then it, it eventually wound up to where we are now. Actually, I, I just got back from Yunshuan, China, and I did a presentation on smart city threats. And um, one of the things we try to do from a strategic standpoint is try to predict the future, which is very hard to do. But you can think of something, you can think of it in this context where uh, a something as simple as a phone, if you, if you went back in time, and took your cell phone back in time with you to say like 60 years ago, so it's not instead of uh, today, we go back to 1968, and you handed somebody your phone in 1968, they would say, what is that? They would not know what it is. That's how far we've come in 60 years. And it's remarkable, the, the progress that, that's actually occurred. My father was born in 1926. He, he passed away a few years ago, but in his lifetime, he went from basically uh, living on a peasant farm in Poland to working in a car factory in Oshawa. Ontario. And in his lifetime, he saw man land on the moon. And he was only born so many years after the the dawn of flight. So the the rapid progress of technology and and what we're up against over the next 10, 15 years is just remarkable. I would love 
to go today, even like 10 years into the future, just to open a curtain up and go, oh, wow, this is really, this is really good. I didn't see that coming, but that's really good. So a lot of the stuff evolves naturally and then you just get pulled in because it, there's a requirement there. And then your boss or whoever may come to you and say, well, we need to get this done because now it's a requirement by government or just by associations and certification groups who like uh, ISO or whatever. There's a new element in there. So you get pulled in to do that sort of thing. I mean, th- that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's almost like if you don't mind me saying, it's almost like you're still a 10-year-old boy who is just looking at the future in awe and just sort of saying, I want to be a part of this and and really sort of just let your imagination almost run away with itself and, and just go, wow, and look out into, you know, sort of space and just go, the possibilities are endless and, and let's 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 grab those and grasp it with both hands and, and just, just really run with it. I think that's absolutely brilliant that you can just sort of, you know, look back and sort of go yeah the last 60 years we've moved on so much um that it is almost impossible to to really put into words you know the 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 size of that improvement and yet we're in an age where new things are happening every single day new technologies are coming out every single year improvements on on current devices are are being made every month that's essentially the way that apple works is that every year it brings out an updated model of their products and 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 it's brilliant it's fascinating yeah Uh, a, a good example of computer technology advancing so quickly is the concord so concord had it was fast. You can go from New York to uh, Paris or London within a span of hours. So you can go, you know, you can get up in the morning, have breakfast in London, have lunch in New York City, and then come back and have dinner in London. The only fatal flaw with Concorde was the sonic boom that was associated with it. And it was a noisy, noisy airplane. So I think it's Boeing. They're actually modeling aircraft to fly supersonically. But because of the computer technology not being based in 1960, but being based in the year 2018, 2019, 2020, they're saying, I think by 2020, they're looking to develop, uh, they've done the testing already, and they've developed a way to have uh, the airflow flow over the wings to create no sonic boom. So that's how far it's come. And if you look at military aircraft, the computer power that is used to do the modeling for stealth aircraft for instance so 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 stealth aircraft i'm sure everybody's familiar with the black diamond shaped uh stealth fighter that was developed that was unveiled during the the first gulf war and in the balkans that was based on again 1970s 80s technology versus today so people often say to me well you're a technology guy why do you think they they got rid of the stealth fighter it was really good it was stealthy i go yeah but now it's actually built into all the fighter aircraft because the computer systems and the, the processing and engineering power has been upgraded so much that they no longer look like uh, flying diamond wedges. They look like more traditional aircraft and they're stealthy. So why do you need that? The stealth fighter was never a fighter. It was basically a drop a bomb and get out and hopefully not be seen. Now it's actually built into all the new, uh, this uh, fifth generation fighter aircraft because of that one thing, the processing power has gone up and that's a key thing like we are where we are today uh, going into the future i have no idea but it's going to be exponential 
sure people have often heard that that when NASA put the first man on the moon and the Apollo space program, your phone has more processing power than the entire NASA organization had to put man on the moon. That's gone from basically buildings to your smartphone. Do you ever feel like it's almost disappointing in a way? I mean, I, I remember that that stealth fighter that you talk about and, and the sleek design of it. It is something that will probably just stay in, you know, etched in my memory. And and you're right, you know, now that technology that was in one whole plane, you know, is probably just one small component of today's modern fighter planes, as you were saying. But is it is it not, I don't know whether I may be just being a little bit science fiction-y here, but you know, isn't that almost a disappointment in the fact that there isn't something, you know, now a fighter plane looks like a fighter plane and how it should do, whereas a, the, the stealth bomber looked like something from the future that had been just suddenly dropped into sort of the early 90s. And, and that we're not seeing anymore because of the fact that the technology is now a lot smaller and can therefore just fit into your more everyday usable tech that you already have and exists. If you look at a World War II aircraft, the, the revolution plane during World War II was the P-51 Mustang, which use it, it was using laminar flow technology to make sure the wing on the plane very, very thin. So it was lighter. It wasn't so bulky. It moved through the air quicker, and it was able to get the same amount of lift, if not more lift, than the German aircraft it was fighting against. So go from that plane to what a, what a, a fighter aircraft looks like today, it's basically a flying body. Like the, the, whole, the whole aircraft's a lifting platform versus just two wings stuck on the side of a plane so but that's become normal we look at that and we go well that's that's just a plane and you look at you look at airliners today they're huge and they're very big and sleek and rounded they're all modeled and and uh you like i love aircraft as you could probably tell but um they get off the ground and they're quieter i remember growing up i used to go to the airport just to watch like when I was like, you know, get, have my car, I love aircraft. So I used to go to Toronto and, and park off the edge of the run just to watch the planes land. And they were like, you know, shake your bones because it was so noisy. Now it's like they come in and just whisper. They whisper right in. And it's uh, it, it's all because of these things have just evolved so steadily and quietly. People don't people don't even notice the changes anymore. Some stuff is like a, a little bit ahead of, ahead of its time, like the Google Glasses. You know, I'm a little disappointed in that and these these uh, wearable um, uh, watch devices I often go to, like Best Buy, I look at some of the stuff. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Would I get that? Well, probably not. So there, there's still lots to do on that. I think the days of the Dick Tracy wristwatch where you talk into it and stuff like that, that's kind of here, but it's still not that practical yet because it's like it links your phone and I'm like, well, why not just use my phone? Why do I need that? Like, why do I have to spend like three hundred dollars for a, for a watch that I could just do it on my phone and just pull my phone out? So, it's some stuff that's that has to get evolved uh, some more. And uh, what's going to come, I don't know. Um, but um, I'm thinking that eventually we're going to have wearable technology where it could be something. Uh, imagine having a instead of like one of those Bluetooth devices plugged into your ear, it could be like on your earring plugged into your, you know, you get an ears pierced and you wear it there and it's always there. You, have to, you don't have to press it or whatever. You activate it with your voice or just it just comes on through a trigger signal or whatever. But going to, to that level and that small, it's quite feasible within the next 10, 15 years that that, that can actually occur. 
because it's it's happening such at such a rapid rate, but we don't see it. It's invisible to us. You go to the you go to the store and you, and you look at the phone and you go, okay, another phone. You don't know what's in the phone. You know it has a better camera or whatever because you watch the ads on TV, and then you get it. I went from from my old phone and I got my first smartphone and it was like night and day. It was like going from a, an old junker to a Ferrari. <laughs> could do all this really cool stuff. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. But now everything's apps. And even those are a threat these days because everybody wants to harvest data. So there's good and bad parts of technology. What I'm disappointed on with technology, like with smartphones and things like that, is uh, how they want to harvest all your data off your phone. I actually called my bank one time and I said, why does your app need access to my camera? my pictures, all my contacts, my internet usage, all this stuff, and you're, you're my bank. All I wanted to go is see how much money I got in the bank or pay a bill or something off my phone or whatever. And you need to know all my pictures and all this stuff. They never really had a good answer. They said, well, we try to cover. You're not covering all bases or whatever they said to me. But there's a balance here. And we really have to, we have to watch it. Because the technology that we're inventing is sometimes so far ahead of some of the legal mechanisms out there or the uh, traditional breaks that are on there that people, they, especially the younger generation, I'm older, so I, I, I can say that now, but uh, the younger generation, they, they gravitate to this stuff. And they go, well, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just the internet, it's just sharing. I'm just sharing with my friends. Well, are you just sharing with your friends? Really? Because you could be sharing with everybody on the planet. Yeah, I'm sure you often heard you know, the, the guy who posts, uh, yeah, my wife and I are going on vacation to Bahamas for two weeks. And he comes back and his house is cleared out because he, he didn't have accurate privacy settings and somebody found out. And there, there's trolls out there looking for that sort of thing. Time for a short break while I go and stare longingly at pictures of the stealth bomber. When we come back, Richard gives his thoughts on the repercussions of hacking attacks and tells us of the challenges he has staying abreast of all the many different international laws across the world. Content marketing is, it's our obsession. Consumers are always being bombarded with content. So white papers, mostly they are used, I guess, to persuade people. When you're refreshing content, really you're updating it. Go through your notifications every day and respond to people that are connecting with you. We've seen a real fundamental shift in the dynamics of marketing over the last 10 to 15 years. Tech Demand Weekly, the weekly podcast for marketing professionals. Now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun, I'm watching the scoreboard. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to People of Tech. Richard Zalewski of the Centre for Strategic Cyberspace and International Studies is my guest this week. My next question to Rich was around his involvement in lots of forums and committees based in places across the world, like Washington DC, Johannesburg and the UK amongst others. I asked him how he stays abreast of all the different laws and influences that each country brings, as that must be a huge challenge. It is, and sometimes you don't even know, because sometimes the laws are, uh, you know what to say. Ignorance is no, no defense when it comes down to the law. Well, is that really true? Are we expected to walk around with lawyers beside us now? So it, it, it's tough, but you have to align yourself with people who are specialized in, in that area to give you the guidance and the advice that you need as an organization to work within your group. That's part of what we do within our organization. We have, we have people who can do that. But even with them, 
they look at some stuff and they go, wow, that just came up. This is going to be a huge impact. Like with GDPR, uh, it's, it's a really strict thing for privacy laws and things like that. And uh, it, it should be held up as a model to a lot of the countries and the regions that don't really respect privacy laws or think it's uh, basically something you kind of do, but not something you live by. So it, it, that's a really hard one. We did an um, internet-based uh, conference one year. And uh, we talked about intelligence, we talked about cybersecurity, we talked about this, that, and the other thing. The one with the highest view rate for us was uh, cyber law. It outpaced everything by, I think, three or four times. That's how popular it is. When I go to conferences, I talk about we have to adapt our laws to, to cyber laws and, and how we're going to adapt that to the insurance industry or uh, technology or whatever. That's always a that's always a a, a question getter, and uh, they go, well, how do you do it? I go, how do you do it? That's the thing because that's the tricky part of all this thing. To me, if you walk into a bank and rob them with a gun, you've committed a crime. If you walk cyberly into a bank, steal the same amount of money, what's the difference? And people often go, oh, it's, well, they use the computer technology or whatever, and I'm like. Yeah, so what? They still robbed the bank. They still cre- they still com- uh, committed a crime. So let's just treat it as a crime. The ends and means of committing a crime shouldn't really be the crux of the matter. It's like, well, you used a baseball bat to threaten somebody or a gun, or you just walked in through a backdoor channel and stole the same amount of money. Well, did the bat or the gun make a big difference? Well, Maybe to the person at the other end, but the other one's more like a silent crime. And the people are getting all, they're falling over each other. But when it comes down to privacy laws and things like that, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good work going on. It's just a matter of we have to get our collective act together because there's different reporting guidelines for different regions and countries regarding breaches. So in a place like California, if you get breached, you have to say it. In some places, they just don't say it. And it all depends on what part of the planet you're actually standing on at that time. Some countries are very open. Some countries are very closed. Some countries want to restrict the internet and, and put in censorship and stuff like that. And some countries, like the UK and here in North America, they don't, they don't want that. They want a nice free internet. Yeah, you can't do hate speech and all the really nasty stuff that's out on the internet. That, that part's yes, I agree. But... Who is the censor on this some, some of this stuff? And there has to be a much more global approach to how we're going to be addressing all this stuff. Pragmatically, with some focus and with some thought, not just we got to slap that in there and have it not be adhered to. One thing in cybersecurity is that you could really lock things down, but you can lock things down to the, to the point of it could be so painful for your user that they will try to find any and which way to get around that. And often, uh, some people, when I do presentations, they go, Rich, what's the best firewall out there? I'm like, the best firewall is a pair of wire cutters. Cut it. And nobody gets in and nobody gets out. You can't do anything. <laughs> but all your stuff is nice and safe, but you can't do anything. So there's a, there's a medium we have to find. We have to find a, a level of acceptable risk. 
we have to find an acceptable level of uh, pain for our users to enable them to do their job well, securely, and with some thought of, okay, so what's going on here? Because the weakest link in all the technology stuff that we have out there, all this magnificent infrastructure and how we could instant message people across the world and talk to anybody on Skype at any time and connect up is the person sitting there who is susceptible to social engineering, to threats, to blackmail, and the worst threat on in your organization is the person on the inside because that's the nice gooey center piece. You can have all this really crisp technology on the outside, but if you're susceptible on the inside with really lax security on the inside, which we often see, then, then you're in for a world of hurt. And that's where the, that's where the, these privacy laws and, and things come into play, where you have to do certain things. So they're really starting to lock things down. And I think it's a good thing, but we really have to get our collective act together. And uh, GDPR and some of the stuff that's happening in the EU is a really good prime example of what should be addressed, how it should be addressed. Yeah, sure, take your regional look at it, but I think there needs to be a more of a governing uh, holistic approach to some of this stuff. I think what you've said there about how essentially it all comes back to, for want of a better phrase, I suppose human error. The, the fact that, you know, we are individually susceptible to different things. And just because the technology is there doesn't mean that those things no longer exist, those feelings and, and, and those emotions. They're still there. Somebody still created that technology. The technology didn't create itself, or at least it's not doing it yet. So you're always going to come back to somebody at the end who is responsible for that technology, for the fact that there is a, a backdoor to the bank, that there is accessibility to that that information somewhere along the line, that somebody is going to go in and potentially just go, I'll, I'll use that against you. And, and, and that's the way it is. And I, I think that's probably something that's maybe for me is kind of an issue is the fact that you, you still come back to human behavior at the end of the day. The fact that with the data breach of British Airways earlier in 2018, ultimately that led to one of the, the people in the organization having to fall on his own sword because somebody had to actually pay for the fact that someone, a third party, breached their website. And I just sort of go and look at it and say, well, these events will keep on occurring, even if there's, you know, international laws that, that are all conjoined together and, and all make perfect sense as if the world was just under one government. But what are your thoughts on the climate of the industry right now in terms of the fact that, you know, with, with for example, again, the British Airways hacking, that a member of their organisation had to actually resign over the fact that a third party came in and, and, and hacked their way in to get and, and breach data? We have a lot of work to do, as we've, as we've been discussing. Um, organizations really have to look at their cybersecurity, not as a, uh, yeah, we should do that, but more as a core piece of their business. Um, it's funny, like I go to a lot of conferences and things like that, and uh, I go, so how, how's your cybersecurity? And they go, oh, it's pretty good. I go, I'm thinking to myself, really? Is it that good? I don't think it's really that good. I don't say that to them, obviously, but I I, I know from, from my... Uh, Pentest background that it's the larger companies, we always found something. There was always something. The smaller companies, because they had a smaller infrastructure, you found less. 
because there was less of a footprint to attack and they maybe only had a couple servers and things like that. These larger organizations, they have, you know, multiple servers and multiple spots and how secure are they? How well patched are they? And the only problem with, I wouldn't even say the cybersecurity industry, I'd say the industry as a whole is that um, the work that's been done on application security and the way infrastructures are laid out and everything of that nature has been almost like haphazard slapped together. So it's like, yeah, we need that. We need that right away. So we'll put that in like right away. We'll get that in there because we ha- we got to be got to be competitive. We got to be got to be on top of the ball. We have to be out there and selling our stuff. Where we, we're losing money. We got to get we we got this new product. We want to get it out there because that's going to make us the money. And and they push it out. And that's a symptom of uh, of a bigger problem where it's all about the 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 short term gain versus the long range goals and objectives. In, in line with security, I know a long time ago, I was brought into a uh, company. Uh, they basically cleaned everything out, got rid of some of the other people, and they wanted a fresh start. So they brought myself and three other uh, individuals in. And we stood there, looked at the infrastructure, and we said, basically, we have a lot of work to do here. And it was like, it was a lot of work. They They were really, really almost primitive in how they were actually doing this thing because they didn't have the skill sets and, and the they basically had two people doing the jobs of five. So we revamped the whole thing, we addressed the whole thing. But one of the things that we did was basically create, as most organizations should, it, we created a security committee, we created a change management group, all the stuff that they weren't doing, we did. Uh, we had fight backs in some of these things because they didn't want to change. And that's the thing. It's the change that people get comfortable in what they're doing. It's like, oh, we don't need that. We've always done it this way. And uh, I'm like, well, is it working? Well, yeah. Well, no, it's not because you got hacked or you're going to get something's going to happen. And I often say that, look, it's not if somebody's going to come to try to hack you, it's when. And if you're more attractive to them, the more, <laughs> the more it's going to happen. So that's just the way it is out there in the world. But organizations have to start taking into account accountability. My bank wants me to go do everything online. And I'm like, yes, that's great. I checked into a hotel in Canberra, Australia. And being who I am, they wanted to take my credit card. Smaller hotel. I said, before I give you my credit card, I want to see your internet security policy on how you're going to manage my data. And the girl looked blankly at me and said, what? I said, you are taking my credit card and putting it into your system. She goes, yeah. I go, how are you storing that? So she called the manager. What he handed to me was the policy where they have to take a credit card. I'm like, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for how you're going to store my data. Just as an exercise, because I wanted to use it for an interview like that. And he never was able to produce anything. I go, how do I know you don't have a back door into your system? Somebody's not even in there right now harvesting my credit information. And that's just a small hotel with very, very limited resources. If a large corporation can get hacked, like Sony Corporation or the British Airways or whoever, does that little company really stand a chance? They're just like low-hanging fruit. They, they probably, their infrastructure uh, offloaded onto some third-party group that says, yeah, we're going to take care of your, your credit card processing for you. 
but even they don't know. They just go, they say, okay, well, we're done with that. So we'll just let them do it. We don't have to worry about it. Well, yeah, you do have to worry about it because ultimately you're taking the credit card. And, but that's, that's the crux of the problem. It's how do we manage all this stuff? And, but that's also the state of the industry. It's so haphazard out there and, and people are doing all this really cool stuff. And it's like this new thing pops up, but things are ever changing. Technology changes all the time. I think you mentioned, you know, cell phones, like Apple and Samsung. It's like every year it's a Samsung, whatever, S10, S11, 12A, 12B, and then on and on and on. It, all you're really doing is like, and some people really like that sort of thing. So they're going out there buying the latest, greatest gadget. Well, do you need that? Really? No, probably not. Because do you need the mega, mega, megapixel camera versus the one, like how how great a resolution do you need on your pictures? Really? I know it's a bad example, but that, but that sort of thing. So with the industry out there, we really have to have a much more focused, pragmatic look. But accountability has to be built into this thing. I thought you said the, the, the one guy fell on a sword. Okay, that's fine. Was he actually at fault? Maybe, maybe not. I, I, who knows? Uh, you know, the, these organizations are, are private and they don't like to have a bad view of themselves, so they kind of hide things. But I often talk about the CIA model. So it's confidentiality, integrity, and availability. That's the, that's the crux of cybersecurity today. What I like to add on during my presentations is the A model. That, sorry, the CIAA model, which on the end says accountability. So if you're going to be held accountable, which people should, my bank should be held accountable for my stuff. I'm trusting you. You're the bank. So you have all this. You, you guys always say, oh, we made billions of dollars or billions of pounds this year. Well, that's really great, but I don't care about that. How are you protecting my stuff? And if they could, if they could show... Well, we did everything we could possibly do. And it was done thoughtfully and pragmatically with some focus and with some objectives and things like that. Okay, well, that's the way it is. There's no silver bullet to security. People often think, well, if we just do this. Well, no, it, it doesn't happen that way. That the, the hacker groups and elements have one thing that we don't have on the good guy side. They eat, sleep, drink this stuff 24-7. And they're they're so focused on some of this stuff that they can really find the smallest thing because they have to find one hole. We have to cover everything. They got to find one hole, and you find that one hole, and you can get in there, and and you're in. And it's so easy to create a back door. You can actually create a hidden back door through some of the stuff. Uh, a good thing to Google is uh, port knocking. Hacking. That's a really good thing to 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 Google for the listeners out there. Google that, and you'll you'll you can see actually how some of these back doors actually occur and are hidden from internal scanners. You can actually hide back doors, and it's it's actually relatively easy to do. Richard Zalewski. In next week's episode, we conclude my chat with Richard and delve into the world of smart tech. Join me on Monday the 7th of January for more People of Tech. See you next time.